Welcome to the forum at Holy Communion. My name is Mike and I'm the rector. And today our forum presentation has two voices from the Dismantling Racism Commission of the Diocese of Missouri, and two different perspectives on dismantling racism in a post-Trump America. I found both of the videos interesting. It's interesting to hear from two different perspectives. If you want to learn more about the work of the Dismantling uh, Racism Commission, I invite you to talk with our deacon, Chester Hines. Uh, there is a, a sign-up going on for a training. The Dismantling Racism Commission offers a 14-hour training. And this year, this spring, it's going to be offered every Saturday. Um, it's most Saturday mornings in March. Uh, and the sign-up is going on right now places are filling up, so if you want to be part of their training, I'd invite you to sign up soon. There's a link at our website, holycommunion.net. But let's thank the members of the Dismantling Racism Commission for putting together our forum today, and we look forward to joining some of them in conversation Sunday after our worship service in our Zoom coffee hour. Without further ado, the Dismantling Racism Commission on Racism in a Post-Trump America. Were you absolutely wrenched emotionally when you watched these scenes from the Capitol on January 6th? So was I. My name is Kurt Greenbaum. I'm a parishioner at St. John's Church in Tower Grove and a member of the Diocesan Commission on Dismantling Racism. And for most of the rest of that day, I was exhausted and deeply troubled. We had nearly made it to the end of the Trump presidency, yet as I always predicted, this presidency was not going to end quietly. Slowly, I began to remind myself of the evidence that this horrific event within the hallowed halls of our democracy was not the defining moment of our era. In spite of those scenes, I still believe we are largely a country comprised of people of goodwill. We saw that in the aftermath of the siege when thousands flooded tip lines with information about the insurrectionists. Some of them were even family and friends of the agitators. We, we saw that over the next two weeks when, in the wake of FBI warnings about protests at our state capitals, none materialized. But don't misunderstand me, I'm, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about the state of race in America. When Chester asked me to consider presenting on this topic today, naturally my first reaction was to visit Google. For a topic of this nature, dismantling racism in the post-Trump era, I was unsure whether I'd have anything to contribute. So I literally typed the phrase into Google to see what surprises might await. And I was surprised. I was surprised by a link to this story in the Washington Post, citing a study by a University of Pennsylvania researcher. The story said political scientist Daniel Hopkins wanted to look at Donald Trump's rhetoric during his presidency and determine what effect that might have had on white Americans. You might be surprised to learn what Hopkins' study showed. Racial prejudice has not increased among white Americans. In fact, it's actually decreased by certain measures. In spite of Trump's toxic rhetoric about Muslims, about Black Lives Matter protests and law and order, about drug-running Mexicans thronging across the border, and about good people on both sides, Many white Americans are listening, and they all don't like what they're hearing. Consider this. 
The Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of George Floyd's killing last May were different, demonstrably different, different in terms of the faces on the streets. Research from the Brookings Institution showed that more than half of protesters in the 2020 protests were white. Now, there's another interesting piece of data that I wanted to share with you. Several years ago, shortly after Trump was elected, I read a book called Brown is the New White. The author, Steve Phillips, is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. The premise of his book is quite simple. If you combine white progressive voters with the plurality of black, Latinx, Asian, and other voters of color, what emerges is something Phillips calls the new American majority. This group amounts to about 53% of the U.S. population. So you might ask, if that's the case, if this group of progressives and people of color are in a position to command an electoral majority, why did Trump win? Phillips updated his book after the 2016 election, and his answer to that question is rooted in a lack of vision from the Democratic Party leaders. Those leaders, he said, were still too worried about currying favor with so-called white swing voters. Those leaders failed to target and mobilize this new American majority. The result was black voter turnout that fell far below the levels of 2012 and 2008. Skip ahead to the 2020 election. Democratic Party leaders in Georgia exploited Phillips' new American majority in this election. Voters in Georgia chose a Democratic president for the first time since 1992. And the day before that shameful display of white supremacy in Washington on January 6th, Georgia elected two new U.S. senators, the state's first black person and the first Jewish person to claim that office. Now I grant you the University of Pennsylvania study I mentioned a moment ago and the book were both written before the 2020 election. They predated the disgusting display of racist rhetoric on January 6th with Confederate flags flying under the Capitol dome and anti-Semitic slogans on t-shirts. It would be easy to recall those images and assume the cause of dismantling racism is hopelessly beyond our reach. But I'll be damned if I believe that. Here's what I'm taking away from the statistics and the studies I just shared. Too many white Americans and black Americans and Latinx Americans demonstrably cherish the promise of America. We will not allow the desperate death throes of radical racism to wash away the promise of this country. My takeaway is that the work of dismantling racism is not dead just because we have metaphorically wandered 40 years in the desert of Trump's presidency. Yes, the insurrectionists of January 6th were horrific, but let's be clear. They represent the pathetic last gasp of a virulent strain of white supremacy. Demographic trends are rendering them irrelevant. They lash out because they cannot tolerate sharing this country with people who do not look like them. I just don't believe they represent the highest and best opportunity to fulfill our missionary responsibility to dismantle racism. I don't believe they represent the mission field. Which brings us back to church. As a beloved community in Christ, we say we will strive for justice and peace among all people. With our baptism, we pledge to respect the dignity of every human being. For us as Christians, this means we are obliged to confront and dismantle systems that promulgate racism in our everyday lives, in our workplaces, in our schools, 
even in our homes and our families. I believe that is our mission field. If we fix our gaze on the institutions we can influence, I believe we ultimately will drive a stake in the heart of the insurrectionist movement. Now I'm going to be honest, this terrifies me. When my church and my God, or Chester, want me to do something related to this work, I must gain comfort from St. Paul's dissertation on the gifts of the Spirit. You may recall he tells the church in Corinth that each of us receives different gifts from the Holy Spirit. Gifts of wisdom and knowledge, gifts of prophecy and healing, gifts of speaking and interpreting different tongues. We were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, Paul says. Here's what that means to me. Marching in the streets is probably not something I'm likely to do. I'm probably not going to pick up the phone and call my representatives in Congress or the Missouri legislature. I'm not likely to volunteer for a phone bank. Other people have those gifts. My gifts lie elsewhere. I can work on educational initiatives. I can speak truth to power in my workplace and places where I live. I can call people out when I disagree. I can vote. I can educate myself so I'm comfortable talking about these issues. God knows I can apologize when I'm called out for my own missteps. Certainly, there's more I can do. So I suppose my answer to the question, how do we dismantle racism in the post-Trump era, is something of a cop-out. We do it the same way we did it before Trump, but with more intention and more determination. We must identify where the mission field is for each one of us as individuals. Then we must figure out what gifts this Holy Spirit has bestowed on us and use them. Join a book club and practice talking about race. Learn what defunding the police really means. Participate in a voter registration drive. Speak up at city council and board of education meetings. Write to your representatives. Watch the media and social media for examples of policies and actions that marginalize black people. Spread the word about them. Write to the institutions that promulgate those policies and raise your objections. Shop at black-owned businesses. Speak up at Thanksgiving dinner. Learn why not being a racist is different from being anti-racist. Participate in an anti-racism workshop or organize an anti-racism workshop. Be deliberate about how you recruit candidates for job openings at your workplace. Donate to organizations that oppose white supremacy. Open an account at a black-owned bank. Read Ta-Nehisi Coates' article called The Case for Reparations. Watch Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th about mass incarceration. Watch the Stacey Abrams documentary All In about voting rights. Read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Don't be silent about racist jokes. Start a children's library with representative books. Try this. Google the phrase 103 things white people can do for racial justice. Listen. Thank you for indulging my thoughts on this question. The work goes on just as it always has. I promise to help fortify you with encouragement and ideas, and I trust I can count on you for your encouragement as well. Thank you. Hi, my name is Mark Waite, and today I'm gonna to be speaking to you about dismantling racism in the post-Trump era. 
I believe the dismantling of racism in America lies at the footsteps of trust in our society. Our presiding Bishop Michael Curry said in his new book, Love is the Way, that without trust, society falls apart. Without trust, the world as we know it stops turning. The former presidential candidate and current nominee for Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, puts it this way in his new book, Trust, America's Best Chance, that trust often unseen is indispensable for a healthy functioning society. And in the absence of trust, nothing that works can work well. In other words, we cannot solve racism without solving for trust. And our inability to solve for trust will create divisions even beyond the divisions of racism. Racism has been a part of the American landscape since our inception. However, the deterioration of trust we are experiencing currently has a history of just over 50 years. As a result, continuing the work of all the great civil rights leaders at times feels as though it has hit a wall. The Pew Research Center stated in a recent report that surveys from the 1960s show 77% of those surveyed had trust in our society. Based on a survey from 2018, that number is down to 21%. Only 21% of people surveyed in December 2018 stated they had trust in our society. Now, keep in mind that was pre-COVID. The question is why? Why are people experiencing such low trust? Well, the top two reasons cited by the Pew Research were, number one, polarization in our government. No surprise there. Recently, you may have heard Rob Portman, the Republican senator from Ohio, cited this very reason for him not seeking re-election in 2022. The second reason cited was isolation and loneliness. Mother Teresa said it is easier to relieve hunger than it is to relieve the loneliness and pain of someone unloved in your own home. Racism was number six on the list. Keep in mind, this survey was before the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd. As a parent of young black men, the fear from diminished trust is constantly played out within me each time they leave the comforts of their homes. The fear is supported by my own experiences of being treated with discrimination by the police. When you look closer at what is behind white privilege, most likely you will find a lack of trust, whether it is in one's own abilities to achieve success, therefore needing to stop the deck, or scarcity mentality that there isn't enough of the pie for everyone. Instead, white privilege expends its energy to deny people of color the opportunity to contribute and increase the size of the pie, creating more for everyone. The deterioration of trust amplifies more than just racism in America. As both Bishop Michael Curry and Pete Buttigieg rightfully points out, it also amplifies all that is wrong in our society. It serves as an obstacle to combat the COVID-19 virus. The managing of the pandemic requires that we trust each other to follow certain health guidelines, such as wearing a mask and washing our hands often. There are even people in our society who do not trust the vaccine. We've all seen the recent attack on our democracy, supported by lies and self-interest. This is the unfolding of trust on a macro scale. If we cannot reverse the trend of diminishing trust, we cannot solve racism, 
or sexism or ableism or any other form of ism in our society. We can't solve for global warming. Without trust, we cannot solve for the deterioration of relationships even within our own families. The question now becomes, how do we reverse the trend? The solve for diminished trust begins with each of us. How do each of us get to a point of trust in others, in ourselves, and in our faith? There are two paths to getting to the point of trust. One path is for each of us to start with trust. The other path is to set the expectation that trust must be earned. Let's look at these a little closer. According to the Pew Research Center, the same survey I mentioned before, 53% of Americans stated that when encountering someone unfamiliar, well, they wait for the person to earn their trust. How do you approach trust with others? Do you start off relationships trusting others and letting them prove to you otherwise? Or do they have to earn your trust? What about trust in yourself? Are you someone who's willing to take risks? In other words, are you someone solving for standards of perfection in your daily life? Or are you someone who subscribes to the principle of fail fast and fail often? Do you find yourself attached to the ideas that become an obstacle to your growth? Ideas such as we are all equally able to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and become anything we want? What about trust in your faith? How do you see your relationship with God? To what degree do you trust God? Is it only when you experience God's blessings or is it also during times of uncertainty knowing that the presence of God is with you always? Are your prayers simply solicitations for God's blessings or are they more for discerning God's will for your life? These are only some of the questions we each must ponder if we are to reverse the trend of diminishing trust in our society. If we are to model our lives to be more Christ-centered, we must first embrace the practice of starting with trust. This is how creation began. God started with trust when God created Adam and Eve. Our ability to design a life reflective of our true selves requires us to start with trust. It requires us to become less attached to our ideas and to present ourselves to the master potter, to mold us into our highest being. It requires us to live more in the present, where we exercise the greatest control. It requires us to forgive often, and, to and that includes forgiving ourselves, and at times, yes, even forgiving God. It requires that our egos take a backseat to the desires of our soul. Racism in America is often seen as a paradox between us and them. Our challenge is how do we hold both in a way that allows us to move forward? This requires a shift in thinking away from either or and more towards both and. For some, Preventing the advancement of people of color is held higher than their own advancement. Their objection to having a person of color as their neighbor is filled with such an unhealthy passion that even if it means they both get to live in mansions, they would still object. For those individuals, we can only keep praying that someday they embrace the divine spirit 
that's within them. But for most, what is necessary for us to restore trust and remove racism from our society is to simply bring clarity to our highest nature. And then we are faced with deciding whether to continue living the life of a hypocrite or living the life of our true being. Those sowing distrust in our society that led up to the inauguration must be held accountable. This will reestablish the minimal trust we expect from those in authority, but we can't stop there. We must elevate that trust to the tenets of our characters. We, the people, must raise our expectations of trust for those we support politically. But we can't stop there either. We must elevate that trust to explicitly define who, who we say we are. We must bring clarity to our highest self and have the courage to hold ourselves accountable. For this, we need for our religious leaders to lead by example, to not waver in what they stand for, to stand up and stand out, and to break free from the grip of self-preservation. The spiritual trust of our divine being is not something we should aspire to. It is the place where we should begin. In doing so, racism will be a thing of the past. Perhaps it is time we look at the solve for racism from the common ground of trust in our society. After all, it is one of the pillars of our nation. And God we trust. Thank you.